Hello, listeners. This is the uh, second episode of the second season of the LIS uh, podcast. Um, today, uh, I'm Greg Casson, by the way, if you didn't know that. <laughs> just uh, today. Just today. Um, today, I am joined by my usual co-host, uh, Sophie. Hello. Uh, Sophie Jeffrey. And we have a special, special guest. Would you like to introduce yourself? Uh, hi, I'm Dr. Martha Patterson. Hi. Hi. <laughs> I'm a professor in the English department. Yeah. Yes. Um, and we're doing this this week. We're doing a special uh, Black History Month episode, which is it's almost over, but uh, still we're, we're doing one. Yeah, I mean it's Black History Month until the twenty eighth. So. Exactly. So we we we're made it late. in time. We're not late. Well, no, not not at all. It's fine. <laughs> <laughs> um, we decided to have Dr. Patterson come on because she actually is going to be well. She is working on. Um, a really great project that has a lot to do with Black History Month. Well, just Black History in general, right? Yeah. So I'm. I am. I've been working on this project for a number of years, and it's called um, the Harlem Renaissance Weekly. And what I'm doing is I'm looking at major African American newspapers, uh, particularly in the late teens, uh, from the late teens through the mid 30s, and I'm looking at how they shaped the Harlem Renaissance, which was the major a major flourishing of African American art, literature, culture, and politics um, during that period, um, f- centered in Harlem. Mm-hmm. And so, I'm really excited about the project. It's 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 kind of mammoth because. Uh, uh, it involves there's, there was such a tremendous amount of activity in the black press during this time, um, and particularly in black newspapers. And so, um, so I have you know a lot of big file <laughs> cabinets full of material. But it's 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 important because of most of the major writers from the Harlem Renaissance, including Langston Hughes, Zora Neale Hurston, Rudolph yeah. Fisher, uh, and George Schuyler, wrote in for black newspapers at least. Um, wrote some creative work in black oh, newspapers, really? and uh, and it's particularly important because this there was a lot of um, African American newspapers provided a extra source of income, and in, in and especially when the depression hit, became just vital for uh, African American writers uh, to survive. So they needed that source of income, and. Um, so before the Depression in the 20s, in the late teens and 20s, um, black newspapers became a vehicle for reaching a broader audience, particularly a African-American working class and middle class audience, um, but also just a always a way of kind of sustaining a career in just a really, really difficult um, uh, publishing field. Yeah. So you're primarily looking at, like, newspapers, then? Or are you incorporating, like, actual literature produced at that time, too? So I'm looking at most of these newspapers. What's interesting is um, almost all of them published fiction. Oh, and really? so they had a, a supplemental section where they would um, produce, they'd publish serial novels. And okay. so the writer that I'm looking at the most is mm-hmm. George Schuyler, who was wonderful. I mean, he's most famous for a book called Black No More, um, which came out in the early 30s, and it's a, it's um, a satire. It's this wonderful uh, satire, uh, one of the first African American science fiction novels. Oh wow! So it's this it's a satire of a 
uh, of uh, a black man who um, goes to, there's this new device that can turn black people white. And so he what? becomes, you know, he, he, he goes, <laughs> he becomes white through this machine. Wow. And, and then the satire of the novel is how um, he creates all this kind of, uh, this anxiety and there becomes this kind of, um, uh, you know, this, all this kind of social tension and questionings because now no one really knows what race, how, you know, what are the yeah. markers of race if someone just can, is actually black but looks white and, you know, oh and so gosh. it becomes this kind of, um, uh, you know, just it turns society upside down and all of our wow. markers of race upside down. So, so he's That's most amazing. famous for that novel, which is wonderful. And um, he's very, uh, he's a fascinating figure. He was, um, particularly uh, known as he was known as a black Mencken, so he was mm-hmm. a satirist, and he would write about everything going on in black life and um, in larger national politics in general. And he was he was um, really 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 good, very mm-hmm. sharp. Very his writing is very funny, uh, and so he he's the one that interests me the most and so that's the one yeah. like i've been following his so the 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 work i've done that i've published on him has been about his serial novels in okay. um these newspapers and so uh they're very you know it's it's so my argument my larger argument is we can't really understand the harlem renaissance unless we understand the popular fiction that's being published in these newspapers yeah. as well and um because uh, what particularly fascinates me is that the the fiction can directly respond very quickly to historical events. Mm-hmm. So, you know, they will, for example, when, um, you know, once prohibition goes into effect, uh, you know, it's, it's passed in 19, goes in effect very shortly thereafter, 1919, after 1919, um, quickly you have kind of these, you know, prohibition novels oh, really? um, and bootlegging novels that come oh. out in the, in, in the fiction. So there's a really quick... Uh, response time yeah. to political events and the literature response to those politics in ways that are really interesting. Uh, mm-hmm. And so that's partly what I'm looking at. That is really interesting, especially like in 2018 where like the response to political events or just anything in general is so fast. So it would be really, it, I bet it's really interesting to look at like the version of that in the 1920s. Does that make sense? Yes. <laughs> and also the fact that we have, uh, yeah, nowadays we have internet, we can get it instantly. Yeah. But like newspapers back then were kind of where you got your news. Exactly. So you get you get a read about the news, and then the fiction mm-hmm. section you get a read satire about the news. Yeah, it's sort of like uh, the Harlem Renaissance's John Stewart or Trevor <laughs> Noah, I guess now because he took over for, on the Daily Show. Yeah, and what I love about it is the debates. Like it complicates everything that you think about. Like. You know, so just something like prohibition, where you think you understand, like you have kind of this general idea of how, you know, people might have responded to prohibition. But in the black press, it becomes so much more conflicted because, so because of the realities of Jim Crow. Mm-hmm. So you have some African American writers who are saying, you know, who are arguing, oh, no, you want to support prohibition because, uh, because of stereotypes of. 
of black men that are out of control, and so we want to project this image of sobriety and control, and so we need to embrace prohibition. And then you have other, you know, writers are saying, no, this is just, you know, the Klan supports prohibition. We don't want to be on the side. You know, we want to support, um, you know, freedom. This is this is. Uh, we should have the freedom to imbibe. Um, and then, what, which is super fascinating, is the image of the black bootlegger in these popular novels becomes really an important figure of black empowerment. So huh. on the one hand, because especially because Jim Crow um, it makes it so hard for African-American men and women to get well-paying jobs because yeah. of job discrimination, uh, jobs within the illicit market you know, of either gambling or bootlegging become uh, more... Uh, viable and more profitable and so you see this very kind of tense relationship between you know what do you do with this figure on the one hand you know is you know is is drinking during prohibition a kind of victimless crime you know who is you know so there's this all this kind of ambivalence about how do you uh, you know, how do you under, understand this period and how do you, um, how do you, you know, how do you feel about about African-American men who are making money selling moonshine yeah. when it's illegal? But, but white people are buying it. But white probably. people are buying it and yeah. black people are buying it. And it's, you know, who is really being hurt by the process. And so it's just, yeah. um, so that's part of what really interests me too is just kind of this is a, especially in the 20s, you have, uh, it, it just a very complicated web of of both positive and negative social forces, and these writers are trying to negotiate them and mm-hmm. construct a kind of positive black identity um, as a means of resisting African stereotypes of African Americans, racist stereotypes. But at the same time, they're trying to embrace the mm-hmm. freedom of what we traditionally associate with the flapper age. And yeah, yeah. So definitely. I mean, it sounds really interesting. Um, Like, I guess, I don't know, the Harlem Renaissance in general is a really interesting time, especially nowadays with all of this political climate that we're living in. Do you feel like this project um, holds even more importance now, like in this world with post-Ferguson, especially locally to St. Louis, um, all of the, like, kettle, what is it, kettling? arrests during the protests last year, stuff like that? I, I think that it's particularly important because uh, the it's in the Renaissance where you really get, um, uh, especially with the work of Langston Hughes, this a kind of claiming of an Afrocentric identity and a black pride and mm-hmm. um, a celebration of self. At the same time, you have, um, you know, it's an, it's, in the teens, you have you know these massive protests against um, Jim Crow violence, mm-hmm. and and so the first march, the silent march, um, uh, first major civil rights march is during is in you know after the St. Louis riots yeah. um, in the late teens, uh, a silent march in New York City to protest the tremendous amount of violence that. Uh, white mobs did to African the African American community and African Americans in uh, East St. Louis, uh, and so it really is this kind of combination you see of of organized political protests with affirmation of an Afrocentric identity um, that you see in the Renaissance, which I think is is so important um, to go you know to really kind of reexamine um, today. Yeah, and has a lot of of residents today so for sure 
Um, was there like a particular? I know you mentioned that book, the satire. What was the name again? The- uh, Black No More. Black No More. Yeah. Um, was there a particular like? Because you teach a lot of like black history or black literature, right? Was there a particular like moment where you were like drawn to it, or a particular novel or book? Or- um, I think that I well the, this. The project came out of work. I started my, you know, law <laughs> in grad school. I became really interested in um, feminist studies and the women's movement, and particularly the rise. My my first book was on the new woman, the American new woman, and I've always been kind of drawn to uh, literature around issues of of social justice and and writers who. Uh, have had to um, really kind of fight for status and fight yeah. for their voices to be heard. And so in some ways it was very natural to move from from the new woman to the new Negro. So mm-hmm. the new Negro figure is the dominant figure out of the Harlem Renaissance. Mm-hmm. And so, um, and I was particularly struck, and I think one of the things that really is motivates me is and doing research um, is the politics of what is not saved and and what is saved and what do we read and what do we not read. And I, as I started to do work, I became in this area, I became really frustrated because so many archives of African-American newspapers have been lost wow. and have not been saved. And so, um, and that really shapes how we understand American literary history since these papers were not just vehicles for information; they were ve- they were vehicles for stories and poetry. Poetry. Yeah. I mean, many of these newspapers published poems on their editorial page, mm-hmm. and they published uh, again. And they had this insert that published um, uh, serial fiction, and uh, you know, in, in conjunction with lost. even essays. So, while some of the major papers have been have been have been preserved. The what they call the morgue of the papers have not been mm-hmm. so it can be you know frustrating to try to understand all the kind of um, uh, you know the all the letters that would go between writers and their you know writers and publisher uh, the, the publishers of the newspaper and editors and all a lot of that mm-hmm. correspondence so a lot of that has been lost um, uh, which is really unfortunate. Sorry, so. I think they're doing like. Cleaning maintenance. Or <laughs> yes, I hear this. <laughs> Something sounds like it's going. The in. building's falling yes, down. Yes. <laughs> so where do you? Um, so you're doing a lot of research primarily through the newspapers, right? Where are you finding them? Like, is libraries or? Well, most of these newspapers, the major black newspapers, have been digitized. Oh, okay. So um, the one that I'm most interested in is called the Pittsburgh Courier, which was actually. Um, circulated in New York City uh, as well as in Pittsburgh, so it was a national newspaper. Okay. Uh, and the Chicago Defender. The Chicago Defender was an extremely important newspaper for inspiring black migration, one of the back, black migration from the south to the north. Yeah, that was one of the things that like started the Harlem Renaissance, right? Was Ex- exactly. A large migration to New York. Exactly, okay. exactly. Um, to try to escape some of the worst abuses of yeah. Jim Crow. Uh, and the Amsterdam News. So those are the three that I'm looking at most closely. Okay. Um, but there's also some other papers... Um, as well, uh, like the New York Age, but primarily I'm focused on New York City and the kind of um, uh, because Schuyler was located there in in yeah. part, but just because that's where really the kind of the center of, of yeah. the movement was. Definitely, yeah, that's really cool. I'm excited for you. Yeah, <laughs> no, I, yeah, no, it's it's so much fun to. It really is 
um, interesting to bring these writers and try to, to bring their stories to life. Because the other thing that's been interesting when I was doing research at the Schomburg Library, mm-hmm. which is the um, in New York City, so that's a it's an African American. Uh, it's called the Schomburg uh, Center for Research in Black Culture, and so that's part of the New York Public Library system. And what was interesting is they they have a papers of, of a writer named Aubrey Bowser. And what's so moving to me is when you read these letters of the writers, you realize like how hard it was. You know, here this oh, yeah. white man he came out. He was a Harvard graduate, <laughs> trying to make a life as a writer. Mm-hmm. Um, in more highbrow fiction, so publishing in kind of these nicer magazines, couldn't do it. And so he ends up publishing kind of this pulp fiction in newspapers. And so they, um, you know, he would have multiple names. (laughs) He'd write under different names. I mean, to just kind of disguise, you know, like Schuyler would just try to disguise the extent of his contribution by having all these pseudonyms. That's amazing. Um, And, um, yeah, so you really, you know, it's just, you do get a... um, a sense of the vibrancy, but also the real struggle it was to yeah. make a living as a writer, uh, as an African American writer during that time. For sure, that's yeah. really interesting. Do you have any questions? Um, no, just I, I can't <laughs> uh, can't wait till I get a Vita. <laughs> so you're Lovely. you're you've been working on it for a long time, yeah. Yeah, so I've published um, uh, two chapters, um, one uh, in a book on the new woman, so on the new Negro woman, which was called, um, uh, which looked at her role in in newspapers of the time, Mm -hmm. and then uh, I I did another chapter on Schuyler and uh, one of his novels. So I, yeah, so that's, so the rest I want to just work on and you know, put Package together the book. Yeah. yeah, that's awesome. Well, good luck. Yeah. I'm excited for you. Yeah. <laughs> so um, another thing that we were going to talk about today, um, I know it's almost the end of February, like we said, but um, there's this sort of movement, I guess, this project that people are doing online. Well, posting about it online. Um, it's called Reading Blackout, hashtag Reading Blackout. And uh, Denise D. Cooper started it. Um, she's a YouTuber. Her YouTube channel is Art Books Live. And she actually is only reading black authors in 2018, which is really cool. She's a black woman herself and realized that she had a lot of um, books sitting around that she hadn't gotten around to yet. So she just decided to make it this goal for 2018. But being um, Black History Month, a lot of other people are jumping on um, her goal as well and reading only black authors for February. So um, there's a lot of books or book lists online. You just Google like reading blackout and a lot of suggestions come up. But do you have maybe any suggestions for books that people want to jump on maybe for the last week? <laughs> oh, wow. Um, there's so I, mean, I know the library has a, do, a station. They too. do. Yeah. But I just want to make something clear. It doesn't have to be February for you to read. That's black very authors. true. So, like, That's very true. You can still read it. <laughs> No, only February. Just kidding. <laughs> well, I think the the first thing I would say is um, I I do want to emphasize like this is uh, this is American literature. I think as as Americans, it is so important to be aware of and to have read the wonderful richness of the the diversity of voices that write and have written in this country. And so, so I want to kind of start with that because yeah. I I I. Um, I always get sad when I 
you know, I think some folks think, well, African American literature is only, you know, one category. Well, it's only, or it's only should be read by African American readers, and that's, yeah. and it, it just so, it's so important to me that that um, we see this African the literature written by African Americans as is is crucial. This is American literature, yeah. and it's so. With that being said, oh gosh, there's so there's so much. Um, <laughs> I'm teaching their eyes. We're watching God now. It's it's one, one of my favorite novels, um, uh, and I particularly love it because of the way in which it. Uh, celebrates the African American folk tradition mm-hmm. um, and the kind of uh, linguistic richness of of black vernacular, uh, black vernacular speech. Mm-hmm. Um, so, gosh, what what else would I read? Um, gosh, this one, I'm everything from uh, Mosley's uh, "Devil in a Blue Dress" mm-hmm. um, to de- that's uh, detective fiction. Um, to Claudia Rankin's Citizen, which is a very powerful response to uh, Trayvon Martin and mm-hmm. to the uh, victims of police brutality, African-American victims of police brutality. Uh, that's particularly beautiful as it weaves in prose and poetry. I am in the midst. I have started Colson Whitehead's um, okay. The Underground Railroad. I have not finished that, but that was very good. Um, and, of course, I always recommend Toni Morrison. Yeah. In fact, I was just listening to – she. I, I've often taught jazz, uh, her novel Jazz, and um, I, I think she writes some of the most beautiful novels about love and – uh, African American heterosexual love mm-hmm. uh, relationships, um, and the kind of, um, in some ways, the, the difficulty of maintaining that love with given the legacy of slavery and Jim Crow. Yeah. So I think she's she is so so beautiful. Uh, her writing is so beautiful. Um, gosh, uh, what else? Yeah. There's uh, so many. It's hard. <laughs> uh, yeah, I mean, I love you know a, a novel. I think everyone in the United States should read. If I could do a big read, it would be Anne Petrie's *The Street*. Yeah, um, that yeah. was a good one. Yeah, we, we read that, that too. Yeah. <laughs> in Dr. Patterson's class. Yep. Um, and, it was really good, though. In part to better understand, I would love to have a national conversation on the legacy of of structural racism in the United States um, and the effects of that and how we still live with that and what that means, Mm -hmm. how that um, uh, impacts how we uh, even can claim a kind of American dream, you know, how that kind of understanding of um, how the promise of the American dream is still not fulfilled given those, that, that kind of structural discrimination. Um, Invisible Man. Oh yeah, um, that's a that's a classic. Yes, uh, is is particularly wonderful for the kinds of um, internalized oppression that often happens um, uh, to African Americans struggling to to pursue a uh, a life in the kind of you know trying to kind of climb the ladder of success. Um, so. Yeah. The possibilities are endless. Just read. That's yeah. all I'm telling you. <laughs> read, read, read. <laughs> I mean, it's the best way to gain an understanding. Like, there's, re- it's proven. It's like encourages empathy. So, I think those are all really good suggestions. Yes. <laughs> <laughs> well, I think that's all we have for today. Do you have anything you want to add, Greg? Um, Is there anything coming out? Well, I mean, he. 
I think he wrote some fiction. He's more of a poet though. Langston Hughes. Oh too. yeah. Langston Hughes is a great one. He, he's pretty great. I have a I have a Langston Hughes poem actually hanging uh, in my house. Aww. It's a uh, it's not one of his political ones though. It's <laughs> it's about it's about like dreams. I don't know. I tried looking it up, but the internet isn't working. Oh, oh in the room in yeah, here. In the oh room. yeah, service is not very good in here. Is that what happens to the dream deferred? Uh, what happens to a dream deferred? No, Probably. it's see. I wish I could have looked it up. Oh, I could have read it, and it would have been super great. Well. Oh. We can find it and post a link to it in the show notes. Okay. I will do that for you. <laughs> but yeah. So I that's what, oh, actually, ending with, with Langston Hughes, I mean, is is wonderful because he's the first writer to write in a blues um, medium, right? And if, to me, Hughes kind of embodies what it means to be um, the the genuine contribution, the the greatest contribution actually, arguably of African Americans to, uh, and African writers and musicians to um, uh, culture and art, which Mm. is, you know, using the blues and the jazz, I mean, as an artistic tradition and transferring for for Hughes, he's transferring that um, musical tradition onto the page. Yeah. So. That's amazing. So. Yay. <laughs> yes, recuse. Recuse too. Awesome. Well, thank you so much for joining us. Oh, Dr. thank Patterson. you so much for asking me. You, you know, I, oh, this was, yeah, this was new. <laughs> it was fun. So, yeah. Um, yeah, I guess that's it. I don't know that anything booky is coming up. I can't think of anything off the top of my head. Booky. Um, Bookish. Oh, montage. Do like, you want to po- say something about um, montage real quick? Sure, yeah. Um, um, yeah, um, I... The 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 editor positions have been announced for for montage the literary magazine. I uh, hold your applause. I am co-editor with uh, with Nicole Fung. I'm sorry if I mispronounced your last name, Nicole. What? I think it's Fung. Okay. <laughs> uh, so yeah, be on the lookout for like emails and like posters and stuff uh, telling you guys to submit. Also. Uh, Aren't you like an editor for the McKendry Review? Oh yeah, yeah, yeah. I am an editor, one of the four editors for the McKendry Review, and we are always, always, always looking for content. Um, We're interested in creative nonfiction. We're interested in just normal news articles. Uh, If you want to do a book review, movie reviews, anything you want to write, basically send it on over to. I think it's just MCK review. You should know that. Uh, I know, but I don't do the email. (laughs) (laughs) You you can send it to me, Sophie Jeffrey at (laughs) McHenry.edu, or just the McHenry review email address. You should be able to just type it in the two box. Yes. But also check it out and read it. It's McHenryMCKReview.com. Do you already have someone doing a review of Black Panther? Because I was thinking some of my students might want to do that. I think so, but I'm not sure. We can talk after. I would love it, though. It would be great. I mean, if anything, we can do a multi-post. There's actually um, a plug for a different MCK radio show. I haven't listened to it, but I saw that there was a review on MCK radio. I don't know who it was by, so if it's, uh, I don't know. If I it, forgot what the name of the show is. Sorry. I, yeah, I'm sorry. I just We're saw. Bad co-show hosts. Yeah, I just saw those on when I was looking for my own stuff. <laughs> but yeah, it was a great movie. I don't know if you guys have seen it. I really no, liked it. Not it yet. It was really good. But um, thanks for listening. We'll be back probably in a couple weeks to yeah. talk about the Shakespeare trip. Yeah. But, um, yeah. 
Hope you had fun. Yay. <laughs> <laughs> All right. Thanks for listening. Thanks. Bye. 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 Bye.